Glad you guys are here on this beautiful Sunday morning. I uh, told the first service actually that, that uh, well, last week if you were here, I made reference to not coming, seeking to impress people with like fancy clothes and stuff like that. And I told you I got like five or six shirts that I rotate. This is one of my six Sunday go to church shirts that I rotate through. And you've probably seen it before. But uh, I actually was in a, a shirt and tie last night looking all fancy and uh, thought, man, I, you know, I only wore it for about an hour and a half. I thought, surely I can wear that this morning. It'd be great. And then I woke up, and it's beautiful outside, and there's no way I'm driving my truck. i got to ride my motorcycle. There's no way I can wear what I was wearing. So you, it's what you got to deal with. I hope you don't mind looking at me this morning. But anyway, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. Glad you're here with us. Uh, we're, we're in a transition point in Luke chapter 8. And so on page 864 of the Bibles in the chairs, uh, the Version Live event notes are are out there if you feel so inclined to follow along there. But we're going to dive right into the Word. I'll do some explanation along the way. We've got a long way to go, a short time to get there, so we're just going to jump right in. And we're going to begin reading in Luke chapter 8, verse 1. It reads, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of uh, Chusa, or Cusa, you, you, you choose which way you want to say that. It's Herod's household, no, no pun intended, uh, it's Herod's household manager, this, his wife, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. We're going to stop right there. Let me just point out a couple of things real quickly. Uh, the, the reality is, first and foremost, I just want you to see what's going on. So Luke is transitioning us from where we've been in Luke chapter 7. He's kind of gone into a city, he, or he'd been in a town, he'd been working in this town, and now Jesus' ministry hits the road again. He's kind of moving back into that itinerant mode where he's going around from place to place, cities, towns, and villages, and he's preaching the gospel. And with him are the 12. If you'll remember, there was 12 people that he called as apostles. He said, you're going to be leaders of this mission. I need you to come on close to me. I'm going to teach you and train you and prepare you. But he doesn't just call out these 12. He calls out several women, and some by name that had a vital role in, in the mission. And I want you to see this. Luke, probably more so than any other gospel writer, demonstrates, consistently highlights, let me say it like that, consistently highlights the vital role of women in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He, he does this all the way through. He, he starts in the beginning and he highlights Elizabeth and Mary. And then, then he continues and he does this here. And then in, in the book of Acts, you see it time and again with Luke. He's highlighting the role and the vital role of women in the ministry of Christ in the days, of the early days of the church. And, and so while that would have been shocking then, I think it's as important for us to see it today because the reality is is sometimes ladies are overlooked. The truth is I want you to know I am thankful. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the ladies in this church who step up into this vital role, who are stepping into the mission and doing the work, uh, joining in the work that God has for us to do is powerful. It's imperative. You have a vital and necessary role, and I am grateful for those that are, are doing that. And second, I want, want you to see, just real quickly, that Luke, again, this is not the first time he's done it, but Luke, again, focuses on the preaching of Christ. Certainly, he does not downplay the miracle working of Jesus Christ. We've been studying and seeing him heal lepers and, and make the blind people see and deaf people hear. We've seen those miracles happen, but 
he consistently comes back to this place where he talks about Jesus, not going and being a miracle worker, but being a preacher. He emphasizes the going and telling ministry of Jesus Christ. He goes into these towns and these cities and these villages for the purpose of preaching the gospel, making sure that people hear of the kingdom that has come, the kingdom that is coming. That's what he's going to do. And today, as we, as we study, as, as we look at the, at the rest of the text that we're going to work through today, through verse 15, we're going to see the, the, why Jesus did that, like why he went about preaching. And you see, we're going to see how important the word of God being proclaimed and preached is. The Word of God is the Word that works. That's the title of the sermon. That's the, the, the focus that we're going to take. I want you to see how powerful God's Word is. We need to see it today. We need to be reminded of it today. There's a reality right now. As we sit here today, there is, uh, maybe not in this instant, but in current days, let me say it like this, there is a debate between two prominent evangelical leaders going on uh, over the place of the Word of God in evangelism. Uh, one side, now, now I might not be doing this total justice because I haven't had time to read it. This is all fresh and I haven't had time to sit down and read both sides of both arguments yet. But on the surface, it appears that one side of the argument has determined that we don't necessarily need the word of God. In fact, we ought to displace the word of God when we're engaging non-Christians if we expect them to become Christians. And the other side is, no, we need the word of God if a non-Christian is going to be become a Christian. By the time I'm finished talking today, I think you'll, you'll know where I'm going to land in this debate, but, but I do need to be fair. I might be mischaracterizing the, the heart of the debate, but on the surface, that's what it appears to be. We need to be reminded of this. If our leaders in evangelicalism, you know, people who are evangelists, that's the whole idea of evangelicals, we're evangelists, if that's going on inside of our tribe, we need to be reminded of the powerful word of God. Well, it's not just debates today. I mean, there's a reality that liberal theologians have been striving to undermine and displace the word of God for generations. This isn't really true. Let's just get rid of the pieces that we don't like. But it's not just theologians. It's not just people within the church, the wolves that would rise up from among the church, the world we live in, the world we live in, we live in a world in which we, which we exist in a stream of information that is constantly flowing over us. I mean, we cannot, we, we, we cannot uh, uh, live outside of this current. A report from the New York Times, I just came across this as I was preparing and studying, a report from the New York Times about a study that was done by the University of San Diego, says this. A report published by the University of California, San Diego, calculates that American households collectively, so all the households in America, households collectively consumed 3.6 zettabytes of information in 2008. So in 2008, all the households in America consumed 3.6 zettabytes of information. You know what a zettabyte is? Nope, I didn't either. Neither did this person that wrote this article because they go on. If a zettabyte is beyond your comprehension, like I'm just learning what a gigabyte is, you know, I'm just kind of understanding that. But if a zettabyte is beyond your comprehension, it's essentially one billion trillion bytes. 
a one with 21 zeros at the end. to, To put that into perspective, one exabyte equals one one thousandth of a zettabyte. You following? <laughs> so we got a, we got, we got a zettabyte that, and, and, and an exabyte that's one one thousandth of a zettabyte is equal to one billion gigabytes. So you're just seeing how big this is, how much information this is. A, a, a zettabyte, or a, uh, I'm sorry, a, an exabyte, or is a, one one thousandth of a zettabyte or a billion gigabytes is roughly, roughly equivalent to the capacity of 5.1 million computer hard drives or all the hard drives in Minnesota. So one one thousandth of a zettabyte is equal to about all the hard drives in Minnesota. So every hard drive in Minnesota is one one thousandth of the information that Americans have consumed in the year 2008. You're there. I mean, this is a massive amount of information. You're getting that, right? I hope you're understanding that at least that. So he goes on. So where does all this information we consume come from? Everywhere, it turns out. The report suggests that the average American consumes 34 gigabytes. So on my own, on my own, not with your help, just me, myself, consumes 34 gigabytes of content and 100,000 words of information in a single day. Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace is only 460,000 words long. So that book is about that thick, well, depending on how big it is, I guess, but, but the ones I've seen are about three and a half, four inches thick. It's only 460,000 words long. He goes on, this doesn't mean we read 100,000 words a day. It means that 100,000 words cross our eyes and ears in a single 24-hour period. That information comes through various channels, including the television, radio, the web, text messages, and video games. We are constantly bombarded. We are constantly living in the flow of information. And no matter how hard we try, whether we intend to be or not, we are influenced by this information. It shapes the way we perceive the world. It shapes the way we interact with people and react to people and think of things. Do we need to be reminded of the importance and the value and the power of the word of God? Absolutely, we do. Otherwise, we will be swept away by this current. When we are finished today, my prayer has been, my my hope for you is that you will see the word of God fresh and new. That you will be stirred up, not just to see it as some, some powerful thing, but that you'll see it as the, as the word that works and enables you to stand in the midst of this current and see his glory shine. For that to happen, we're going to have to keep reading. Because my words don't really have a lot of power, but his do. So let's Read, we'll pick it up in verse 4. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. No, let's just stop and, and think about this. So he, here's these crowds, like Jesus is going around. He's got the 12, he's got these women with him, and, and all of these people together are working towards furthering his ministry. And not just these people are coming out. I mean, there's people from every town, from town after town after town. So you can imagine hundreds of thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people are, are, are out here following Jesus, listening to what he's saying, watching the things that he's doing. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, he tells us, as he's about to relay this, this same story to us, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus, at this point, was at a place where he was near the, the, the lake, and, and, and there's so many people, they're pressing in around him so tightly that he steps out into a boat to move away from them. So he's standing, or sitting, I'm sorry, in a boat, teaching from the water as they are gathered on the beach. Now, I just want you to imagine this for just a minute. I mean, the reality is most of you in this room have probably heard this story before or heard this parable before. I, I just want you to imagine it for a minute. A parable. What, what is it? There's a lot of definitions. R.C. Sproul, I've, studied, I've read and seen a number of definitions. I think R.C. Sproul's is the one I appreciate the most. He defines it as a story that truth, a story that is told not for entertainment value, but to teach a truth or to communicate a moral lesson. And here you are, hearing this parable. And all of these people gathered around, and, and here you are, you know, you're like you've come out of this town and you've seen all these people and you're hearing Jesus speak. And you're standing there, I don't know, some tall guy's in front of you and you can't see. And so you're on your tiptoes craning around looking over their shoulders. And he talks about this seed where the sower is going out and sowing the seed. He sows the seed and it falls on these soils. Some is snatched away by birds. Some, it withers. Some is choked out and some bears fruit. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In this moment, do you, do, you, do you think, oh, wow, I understand. I got it. I finally figured it out. I think the reality is, is that most of us would be in a place where the disciples find themselves. What in the world is he saying? What does he mean? See, here's the reality. Jesus hasn't just begun. This isn't the first parable that Jesus teaches. This isn't the first time that he said anything in a parable. He's, he's done it a couple other times. But if you go back and look in the book of Luke alone, you see that in, in Luke chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 6, where it calls out a parable, a story told to convey truth or some moral reality, he's connected it to other teaching that enables us to understand what he's saying. To this point, it seems as if this is the first time he's taught simply in a parable. Like he gets out there and he says this and that's it. Do you walk away feeling better for it? What in the world is he saying? What could that mean? John MacArthur comments on this. He says a parable without explanation could mean anything or it could mean nothing. And the reality is that we can make it mean anything. We can apply any meaning to this. We could take these symbols and apply anything to them that we wanted. And all the while miss what Jesus is talking about. 
I'm going to be honest. I'm just going to be frank with you. If this is all I had, I wouldn't have anything to tell you today. I am so thankful that this is not where the story ended and we just go on. What in the world did he mean? Well, I'm, I'm thankful that I, like the disciples who were with him, who saw him day in, day out, who heard his teaching much more closely, much more regularly than I, had to ask the question. And I'm thankful he was gracious enough to answer. Let's keep reading verse 9 and 10. And, and when his disciples asked him, so, so let me just tell you this. So Mark tells us that this happened later. So at, maybe at night after the crowds had kind of dispersed a little bit and, and Jesus and his disciples are alone, they, they ask him. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So he tells them, before he begins to explain the parable to them, like, they're like, hey, what does this mean? He's like, well, hey, before I tell you what this means, let me tell you why I'm doing this. You need to understand why. You need to understand why I didn't give any instruction but in parables today. And the reality is, is that he did to make a distinction between those who hear and those who listen. He's making a distinction between the casual hearer and, 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 the, and the intent listener. So he does this by, by drawing from Isaiah chapter 6. I don't know if you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. I, you can go back and read it at some point. I'll just kind of give you a synopsis of it. Isaiah, this is the point where Isaiah is called into ministry. He's one of the Old Testament prophets wrote a, a, a huge book of prophecy. I'd encourage you to go read it. It's powerful. It's, it's, it's sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel. There's so much Jesus in Isaiah that, that they refer to it as the fifth gospel. I'd encourage you to go read it. But in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is called into his ministry. He's called into the work of God. And, and, and he's, it happens in this vision that he has. And he has this vision that he's in the temple and God is sitting on the throne. And the train of his robe, it says the train of his robe fills the temple with his glory. And, and, and here's Isaiah, and he's seeing this, and just imagine being in front of the throne of God. And I don't know what that looks like exactly, but it's got to be amazing, right? I mean, and, and on either side of the throne, there's seraphim, angels, on, on either side of God, and they are crying back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His glory fills the whole earth. This moment, this holy moment, this, this supernatural moment, Isaiah's experiencing it, and he sees God's holiness, and he's suddenly confronted with his own unholiness, and he, he begins to lament. It's like, woe is me. I don't know if I could get that out. I mean, I don't know what I would do. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And this seraphim comes from the throne of God and goes to the altar and grabs a burning coal and he goes to Isaiah and he touches that burning coal to his lips and he says, you have been cleansed. This beautiful moment. And as this is happening, Isaiah hears God is calling for who he will send to go 
and Isaiah. Here I am. I mean, just freshly, freshly purified, freshly motivated, freshly encouraging God on his throne. Here I am. Here I am. Send me. Send me. As missionaries all over the world have, have used this as that moment to describe that moment that they've un- understood the call to go, to go and tell. It's a beautiful moment. But not often do we stop and we think about what he was called to do. See, in, verse, in Isaiah verse, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, we see after, after God has called and Isaiah has answered, God confirms and sends and commissions, and he says this. It says this, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind, and, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be filled, or turn and be healed. Man, who signs up for that? <laughs> send me, send me. Oh, wait, I'm supposed to go prophesy judgment? I'm supposed to go do a work where nobody responds to me, they reject me and just soon not hear from me? No, nobody's really signing up for that, but that's what, that's what Isaiah was commissioned to go and do, to go and prophesy judgment against Israel. When he asked how long he was to do this, I mean, at some point you've got to ask this question, right? Because if you're going to be the prophet of judgment and not the prophet of the, of the, of the blessing, I mean, if you're the prophet of the, of, of the judgment, you've got to know, you've got to ask the question, like, how long am I supposed to do this? How long is this going to last? And God says, until cities are laid waste and the land is desolate. Don't we prefer to be a people who, when we minister, the crowds come flocking to us and go away talking about how great we are? Isn't that how we measure the success of someone's ministry? By what we can see, the numbers we can count. We want results. We're results-driven people. If we don't have results, then something must be missing. That's not why Jesus told parables. He didn't tell parables for the results that people, that impressed people. He told parables for the results that the word would bring. You see, Jesus teaches in parables to actually make a distinction between the heart that hears and listens and the heart that just simply hears. Leon Morris put it this way in the Tyndale New Testament commentary. Parables both reveal and conceal truth. They reveal it to the genuine seeker and who, who will take the trouble to dig beneath the surface and discover the meaning. But they conceal it from him who is content simply to listen to the story. You know what separates the disciples from those people who stood on the beach? The disciples were asking the question later, what does that mean? What are you saying? Everyone, they had the opportunity. He was there teaching. Teacher, teacher, I don't understand. What what are you saying? Help me understand. 
But it wasn't until later when everyone was gone that these disciples asked, hey, can you tell us what this means? This brings us to the first point. I want you to see that. I want you to get this. I want you to, I want you to realize it. The word of God is the word that works. It will always accomplish that which God intends it to accomplish. It will always do what he intends it to accomplish. Sometimes that may mean that it reveals the hard heart that needs to be judged. And sometimes it will fall on those whose hearts have been sown or whose hearts are prepared and ready. And it will bear fruit. But there will always be a result. His word is powerful. It will always accomplish what he intends it to accomplish. Jesus teaching parables was not so that everybody could walk away feeling good. He was not simply telling stories to make people feel at home and comfy. He taught parables so that some would hear. Now all would hear and some would understand. Some would believe. Some would be saved. And some would go away to judgment. That's difficult. But it's the reality. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, as I said at the beginning, my heart's desire for you today, every person in this room, while I didn't know who all was going to show up, I've been praying for every person in this room that today the word will fall on you and it will produce a crop a hundredfold. Let's keep reading verse 11 through 15. He goes on to, to explain, not just to say why he's telling these parables, but he goes on to explain this parable for us. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Now I'm just going to stop right there and just explain this. It's, it's powerful. It's important that you see this. Jesus didn't even talk about the sower. He didn't explain the sower at all. Like everybody wants to point out the pastor or the preacher or the person that's doing the talking, right? Like, like he's amazing and we put all the, all the weight on this person's ability to do something. Like we appreciate his methodology or we point out his, his perspectives or we, we talk about how, how, how gifted he is. And I'm not saying that there's not a gift to being able to communicate. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the sower in this story of, 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 of the power of God's word, it's not even worth explanation. Now, truly, truly, we could see this. Jesus is going about preaching and teaching. He could be the sower. But so can you, and so can I. So can we. The reality is, is that the sower doesn't even need a description, doesn't bear a description, because the power comes not from the sower or his methodologies, which Jesus neither critiqued nor, nor, nor highlighted, but he simply focused on the word and where the word lands. The seed is the word of God, he says. The seed is the word of God. The, the ones along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, these are who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who are hearing the word, hold it fast in, honest and good, in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. The word of God is the word 
that works. And there will always be a response, but let me get a little more specific. The word of God is the word that works. It always produces a result in the hearts that hear. It always produces a result in the hearts that hear. And we're going to go through. There's three responses, three groups I'm going to break this down into. Three responses that Jesus called out. I don't think that this is an extensive or an exhaustive list, let me say. But but three responses that we can kind of expect to, to see as the word of God is proclaimed, as it's sent out, as it's given away. And first, the first one we come to is no response at all. This is the hard soil, the hard heart. The the sea lands on it, but can't penetrate it. And then the birds come along and they take it away so that that person has an inability to respond. But, But don't miss this. No response to the word of God is still a response to the word of God. It's still a result. It's still us doing something with it, a denial of it. The response is oftentimes blamed on the preacher. He didn't say it just the right way. He didn't speak to me the way I needed to hear. Happens regularly. In fact, not long ago, I was told by someone that, oh, well, you know, I just, your your sermon is, that's just not what I need right now. Like, I need to be encouraged. I need to be, I need to, I need to need to be lifted up. And not that your sermons aren't that way. Well, (laughs) are they? I mean, it's like, I don't know what to do with this, you know. Another one I hear pretty often is, wow, your preaching's getting so good. Maybe, maybe I'm bringing you what you need by coming to you with the word of God. And maybe it's not my preaching that's getting good, but your heart that's getting sewn in. You see, the reality is that we oftentimes point the finger at the preacher. Don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand me. I have a job to do. When you go out into the world and you proclaim the gospel, you have a job to do. It's important that we hear the word, that we can then preach the word. It's important that we understand the word and handle the word rightly. It's important that we come and we do our best to to, uh, contextualize it in a language that's spoken. It wouldn't be any good for me to get up here and talk to you in French. Not only could I not do it, but how many of you speak French? Like, There's a reason that I'm here preaching. There's a reason I'm here. It's important that I do my part. But this parable says that if the heart is hard, there's no, no response, not because the preacher failed or the word wasn't powerful enough, but because the heart was hard. Brothers and sisters, this is important. And it may just be. Because Jesus told us, it may just be. That the word was preached to that person and there's no response because God's intention through his word for that person is judgment. As hard as that is to say, as hard as that is to consider, it may just be. And also, I don't want you to overlook, I don't want you to miss the, the spiritual warfare component that happens inside of this, this piece. Like the, the birds, which is the enemy, comes and snatches the word away. The, the, the enemy is after the word. He is doing all he can to undermine, to, 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 to remove the power of the word to save people. It's beautiful that he's not powerful enough. It's beautiful to me that this is the only place that he has an opportunity. Even though there's others that are going to reject it eventually, it still has a response. There still is a response. And that brings us to the second group, the temporary response. Now, with this group, we could break them down into two 
sections. We have the shallow and the, the shallow and the superficial here, and we have the preoccupied here. The shallow and the superficial here hears it and appreciates it. Wow, that's pretty good. That makes a lot of sense. I want to go to heaven. Why wouldn't I want to go to heaven? That sounds like a great place to be. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this church thing. I'm going to come on Sundays. And then some massive trial comes into your life. I don't know. You lose a loved one. A child is killed. One's common has happened to a number of our people is miscarriage. An inability to conceive. A spouse cheats. A, a job is lost. And suddenly, suddenly the, the, the church thing just doesn't make sense to you anymore. Like, I thought, I thought my life was going to get easier. I thought you had all this good stuff for me. Like, what, why is this still happening? I, I love what Philip Ryken says about this trouble is the test of the true Christian faith. When trouble comes, the rootless will fall away, but faithful Christians will grow stronger through their pain. Brothers and sisters, the, the, word, the, the word of God is what prepares us for that. It's what enables us to endure through that. It's the power of God's work at work in our hearts that makes us, enables us, empowers us, strengthens us to endure through the difficulties of life. I don't know how people outside of Christ do it. I don't know, I don't know why, we don't, why, why suicide rates aren't skyrocketing. I don't think the world's getting better. It seems like to me that there's more and more difficulty everywhere we turn. How, do, how does the world without the word do it? This, this enables us. It's the, it's the root, it's, it's, it's the water that, that reaches our root that enables us to, to, to endure the difficulties of this life. We need the word. There's the shallow and superficial here. There's the preoccupied hearer. Everything is competing for this person's attention. And just knowing this church, knowing the places we're at as a church, I th think this is probably our greatest danger. I mean, this person is worried about everything. Like, I'm just so busy. And so many noble things for me to be about doing. I just barely have time to take care of my kids. I mean, how, I, 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 give, I give the word. I, I mean, I get it for 45 minutes on a Sunday. Isn't that enough? I, I, I don't know. 34 gigs and 100,000 words a day. What do you think this amounts to? I bet I don't even get a gig of content. It's only about six pages on a printed page. Probably just a few hundred meg. Is that enough to, to stand, to, to endure the onslaught, the, the current of the world's information overflowing? Us. We live in a day and age where, 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 where binge watching Netflix is, 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 is commonplace. 
We can talk more about our, our series on Netflix that we're watching. We can get more excited about what's happening in our world of entertainment than we can the Word of God. We, we know more about our fantasy football leagues and how our players are doing. We talk more about what's happening at work. We give our time and our lives not just to the things that we care about, like the, the things that we, concern us, like families and kids and jobs. We give our lives to the pleasures. Like he doesn't just call out the, the cares. He calls out the good things, like the entertainment and the riches. Brothers and sisters, because I care about you and because I love you, this is where I'm concerned for our church. I, I see us enduring hurt and hardship. Man, we, we, we get pretty preoccupied with a lot of things. We put our hope in a lot of things. The power is in the word of God. The word of God is the word that works. We do not have to be anemic. We do not have to be dry. We do not have to be choked out. We have been given the word. <laughs> and you can read it in print. You can pull it up on a phone. You can listen to it if you don't like to read. It is abundantly available. And finally, this, this last response, the enduring response the hearer hears the word, believes the word. It bears fruit in that person's life, not just periodically, not just for a moment, but from now on. It bears fruit with patience. Earlier in the parable, he says it bears fruit a hundredfold, like this, 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 this um, increasing measure, this exponential measure, one seed falls and it bears fruit a hundredfold from here on out. And we talk about this, we believe this, we hold to this, that, there, that once a person has come to faith, once a person has, has been saved, they cannot be unsaved. But it's not because the person keeps them saved, it's by the power of the preserving word of God. You are preserved, you persevere, not by your own will, not by your own might, but because the power of the word preserves you, it enables you to endure, it empowers you to, 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 to walk through the storms of life, it turns your attention from the cares and the pleasures and the treasures that you might see the glory of God and it would bear fruit in you and change us from the inside out, overwhelm the onslaught of information, overwhelm the worldly perspectives, overturn the, the worldly ideas. The word of God is powerful for the person who hears it. It's not a preacher. It's not a method. It is the word of God that does the work, empowered by his spirit and brought to us by his son. The seed is the word of God. He doesn't even mention the sower. doesn't even point him out. The word of God works. And it does its work in every heart 
that hears. Let me just show you this from another couple of perspectives quickly. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross, just so you get it, so, so you comprehend, so, so we don't leave anybody behind. It's the word of God. It's the gospel. It's the message of Christ. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to those who have hard heart. It's folly. It's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You want to experience and know God's power? Know his word. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, spiritual division and physical division. It's powerful and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, the, the, the word of God, it, did, it, it doesn't just change us. It doesn't just give us power. It reveals to us who we are. And it reveals what kind of heart we have. It reveals to us the truth about ourselves, the truth about God that we might respond, the truth about his, his plan to save us. Second Timothy, Paul's writing his last letter. To this young man, it was a son in the faith. He, he was close to him. He, he adored him. He loved him. And his final words to him, his final letter that Paul ever wrote, it, it, I think probably this is a letter that Timothy got and probably read and reread. I mean, and, and if you're Paul, it's the words, I mean, this is the last thing I'm going to say to this young man who's extremely important to me. These words are words I want him to hear. Like you're on your, you're on your deathbed. You're not wasting words, right? You're not saying a bunch of stuff that's not necessary. Profound and important. Comes to this place in 2 Timothy in this letter. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. It comes to us by his expression. It's breathed out by him. It might be written in hand, by, in, in, in the man, hands of men, but it's breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's profitable. It's good for us. It changes and shapes us. It shows us our, our error and points us to, in, the, in the path of correctness. It shows us the correct way to go. Like, why would we waste our time with a bunch of other things? Well, why would best practices be the thing we immediately turn to? Why would books on psychology and, and, and help, self-help stuff look, at, look for the power inside yourself? Why would that be the thing that, that excites us? Why would entertainment think, why would we think that entertainment would have some power to, to give us strength and understanding? The word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, that you would be made ready for every Good work. Sometimes that good work will be out talking to someone else about who Jesus is. Sometimes that good work will just be enduring in the face of difficulty. Sometimes that work, that good work, will be turning off Netflix that you might open the word. Now, I'm not trying to demonize Netflix or, or, or entertainment or rest. There's a time for it. But there's a time that we don't need it. But, but, but Paul doesn't stop there, right? Like, he, he tells him what 
benefit scripture is. And if we didn't have chapters and verses, we would see that along that same line, in that same thought, with that same breath, he goes on in chapter four, verse one, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. This is a powerful thing. I mean, this is a big deal. Like he's standing in front of God, invoking God and Christ Jesus. And he's saying, I am charging you in front of them who is to judge the living and dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So not only is the word profitable for these things, for the correction and for the showing the correct way, for, for showing error and showing correction, we're to teach to people, we're to preach it to people in such a way that it shows error and exhorts them to the proper path. It's the idea. It's profitable. It's worthwhile. It brings change. It helps us endure. It enables us to, to turn from the, from, the, from the trappings of this world that would, would preoccupy us. Brothers and sisters, it's the word of God that does the work. And you don't need this just because some, some university did a study and some and New York Times wrote a piece on it. Because of some statistics and numbers, you need this because this is real life stuff. I'm, I'm, I am a living example of the Word of God and its power to transform a person from the inside out. First, it saved me. I mean, I walked into that church knowing all the answers, having an understanding of all the doctrines. It could have told anybody the answers they wanted to hear. But in His Word, He brought my soul to life, and I left that building that day a new person, a different person. But for so long, for several years, I, I lived as like an infant in an adult body, like I was bouncing off everything, you know, I was stumbling around, making mistakes, poor choices. And when difficulty came, when difficulty came, the darkest days of my life, when that difficulty came, I reacted just like an infant. I threw a fit just like that infant. God was faithful. People continued to come to me friends that I had, people that I worked with, get in the word. Read the Bible. Seth, if you'll just read the word, I know it'll help you. I know it'll give you strength. I got to this point, my, my life was spiraling, spiraling out of control. I felt like I was at rock bottom. If I wasn't at rock bottom, it scares me to think about how far I could have fallen. I mean, literally, I was out of control. If you had met me in that day, you would have had no idea there was conviction and a work of the God going on in my life. I didn't know where to turn. So one day, it was when I was working out at Worldwide Aircraft. I was a, I was a crew chief at the time. I left for lunch. We got an hour lunch. and I got in my truck and I drove over and parked under a tree in the shade and brought my Bible with me. Every time before I'd cracked the Bible open, I told you this a few weeks ago, I opened it just to justify myself, to proof text myself away from the idea that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I opened the Bible and I began to read. I didn't know what to read. I, didn't know, I had no idea. <laughs> Nobody had ever taught me. Nobody gave me a best practice. I opened it to Matthew and I thought, well, I'll just read the New Testament. So I began to read. Didn't know what was going to happen. Had no clue. 
Can't tell you when it exactly happened. Can't tell you exactly uh, uh, how many days or weeks or months it took. But I, I read it through, and somewhere along the way of reading it through that first time, it came to life for me. My eyes were opened. And all of the hurt and the pain that I felt, I suddenly understood that God hadn't abandoned me, that he didn't leave me alone. It wasn't his fault. All this anger and frustration that I'd felt and I was expressing in my actions and, in, and even towards people. It began to melt. He broke me in two. And I finally began to grow from infancy. I still don't know today if I'm an adolescent or not. I, I, every time I think I'm an adult Christian, I suddenly realize I'm not as far along as I thought I was. But the word of God did its work. And I'm confident, not just because of my experience, but by the promise of the very God who came and put on flesh, that if you'll let it be sown in your heart, if you'll stand in the way of the seed being sown, it will do its work in you too. The word of God is the word that works in the heart that hears and believes. The fruit will be beneficial to many others. You see, there's a reality that as I read that word, as it began to do its work in me, I suddenly realized I couldn't hold on to what I was learning and seeing. Like I needed, I, I had to tell others. Somebody needed to know that these things are here. And it was through that process that God began to use me to evangelize and to share with people. It was through that process that he led me to a place where I stood in front of a crowd of people and began to teach. And many years later, it was through that process that he led me to a place where we started a church. And it's because of the word of God that I'm here today preaching to you about the word of God. It is the word that works. It is powerful. It is beautiful. It is life-saving. It is life-altering. Would you get in its way? What's being sown in your heart? Let me just close with two questions. What is being sown in your heart? We live in a world that the information is constantly flowing. What is being sown in your heart? What are you sowing in the heart of others? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your word, for the power in our lives, for the power to bring change. Personally, Father, I thank you. I can't imagine where I'd be had it not been for your word. Spirit, I would ask in this moment you would deal with the hearts of the people in this room. Stir up the soil of their heart that the seed may fall into it and take root and bear fruit. Would you do that work now? I ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.